Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we continue our series over the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Very good. So where we are picking up this morning is we're still in the part of John 5 where Jesus is having to deal with people that were opposed to the idea that he did a good thing on the wrong day. What was the good thing he did? He healed a guy that had been paralyzed or at least lame in some sense for, uh, for a lot of years of his life, maybe his whole, his whole life, we don't know that. Uh, and then what, so that was the good thing. And he did the good thing, but he did it on the wrong day. What was the wrong day? Sabbath day. Why was that the wrong day? Yeah, because the people that were very strict in their interpretation of God's law, particularly the third commandment, where it says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, and then it goes into a little bit of an explanation, even in Exodus, uh, you shall not do any work on the Sabbath day, nor shall your manservant, nor shall your slave, nor shall your animals, any of those kinds of things. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty explicit when it comes to that. But then what the Jewish uh, rabbis had done over time is that they had thought, well, we need to explain that better. And so you know how it is when people get a hold of something and they say, well, I just need to explain it better, is that that makes it more complicated in many ways. And they started to add a lot of restrictions and definitions and and with very specific detail, this is what constitutes work and this is what constitutes not work. And so by the time Jesus' ministry is happening... They were very specific about that, and not only were they specific about it, but they were also very particular about anybody that would have broken that. And that's why you get the sense sometimes that they were kind of following Jesus around to make sure that he was doing good things on the right day. And, you know, you got to believe that that would have been kind of annoying to Jesus after a while. But the principle that I think what we're, what we're dealing with here, at least I'd like you to think about is when doing the right thing violates a man-made law or tradition, the reality is it might cost you something to do that. And sometimes I think that's the dilemma we have as Christians, is that doing the right thing, we're a little bit surprised that if we do the right thing and it turns out that that breaks a, a tradition or a, a societal norm or you know whatever it is that you want to call that, were maybe a little surprised, maybe somewhat disheartened, if you will, at the negative pushback that we get. Because we think, and I don't know, maybe it's just naive on our part, but we think that people ought to be able to see that the right thing was the good thing, and why can't that trump whether or not it was done in the right way, or you know, it followed the certain rules, or whatever it is. And I think that in some sense, that's what Jesus is dealing with here. There were a lot of people, and it came mostly, I suspect, out of the, uh, the religious leadership. It didn't come so much from the people themselves. But they took a lot of comfort in the idea that we have a certain way of doing things here. Have you heard that before, ever in your life? We have a certain way of doing things here? Yeah, every time I went to a new church, we have a certain way of doing things here. Even when I came here, we have a certain way of doing things here. 
Yes, so we all can relate to that, right? And how do you, when, do you, when are you likely to hear that? When somebody says, well, we have a certain way of doing things here. When, when are you likely to hear it? When you didn't do it the way we do it here, right? When you trip over it, when you step in it, when you fall over it, whatever is the verb you want to use. And I've done all of those. It can be a little bit disconcerting that the good thing that you did or even the good intent that you had sort of gets tossed in favor of, well, you just didn't do it the way we do it. And so I think in, in many ways, this is the, the meta message or the meta dilemma that's going on in terms of this interaction that Jesus is having with, uh, with the scribes and Pharisees. So that's where we pick it up today, then, as Jesus is continuing to talk with them about uh, this. And, and you notice from the, from the words, and we'll see this today, that the conversation has moved beyond the immediate thing that started it in the first place, which was that Jesus healed the guy. He did it on the Sabbath. The guy's carrying his bedroll around, and they're upset that he's working by carrying his bedroll. And then they want to know who did it. And he goes, well, I don't know who did it until later. Then he found out who did it. Okay? All right. So Jesus picks up. We pick it up in verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus, now he's, what he's doing is he's addressing these, this idea that he has a role to play in terms of exercising judgment on earth. And we would even look ahead to eternity because and we looked at this last week with Matthew 25, is that who is it that gets to separate the sheep from the goats? Who is it that is separating the believer from the unbeliever on judgment day? Jesus is, right? But what he's reminding us of is that he's not exercising his own will. He's not doing this where he just said one day to himself, oh, I think I'm going to do this. He's exercising the will of his Father, and that's where, where he's going with this, is that the fact that the Jews of that day were willing to accept the idea that they should believe in the Father, but they could not accept the idea that believing in the Father meant that they should believe in the Son. They wanted to separate the two. And where Jesus is going with this, and we'll see it at, at, in, in a very extensive way in, in, in the words that are coming up, is that we're one, it's one and the same. You can't believe in the Father and then reject the Son. If you reject the Son, that's the same as rejecting the Father. And that was, that was blowing their minds. They, they couldn't get past that, all right? And if you've ever talked to anybody in today's world who have that same view, that the Trinity is a separate, that there's separation of the Trinity, um, number one, it's really hard to explain because who understands the Trinity, right? But number two... There is, that, there is that, and maybe this is a human thing, to make it more approachable or to make it more understandable, I can relate to Jesus, but I can't relate to the Father. I can relate to the Father, but I can't relate to the Son. And yet God presents himself in that amazing triune way. So Jesus says, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He is truly a servant. And as a servant... He is, is dedicating his life in spite of what everybody else around him kept trying to do. 
They kept trying to define for him what his life and ministry was about. And Jesus kept saying, no, 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 I'm here to do, I'm a servant, I'm here to do the master's bidding. And the master in this case is my father. And the best example of that is in Matthew 26, 39. And going a little further, he, Jesus, fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What's the context here? What's going on here? Yeah, Gethsemane. I mean, Jesus knows what's coming. And humanly, and we would say this humanly, yeah, he knew what was coming and he wasn't looking forward to it. And so he's saying, I would just as soon not have to go through this. But not because I want to, are we going to do this? It's because you want to. And sometimes, I think as Christians, sometimes um, we can see what's in front of us. Now, not very far. Okay, I mean, we always think we can. We, we always go, oh, I know what's going to happen here, right? We always say that, but we don't really know, right? But you, there are some things you can see coming, right? You kind of go, oh boy, here we go. And when you see it coming, you might not want it to happen. You know, you might not want to go through with it. And then if you know what you're about to do is in fact the right thing at the right time and all that kind of stuff, right? And you know the pushback you're going to get, the grief you're going to have to take. You might conclude that maybe it's not worth doing it today. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. So there is some sense of that that we hear, we see in Jesus, and yet what does he say? Not as I will, but as you will. So let's talk a little bit about the will of him who sent me. Because I think um, one of the things that can happen in our Christian walk is that in our conscientiousness to serve Jesus, I think sometimes we struggle with wondering if Jesus has something in mind specifically for us to do or be about, and we sort of tie it to this idea of the will of God. People, you'll often hear people say, well, I just want to make sure that I'm serving God's will. I'm doing God's will here. I just want to make sure of that. And they're wrestling with it. And sometimes it has to do with a major decision that they may be having to deal with in their lives. Like, you know, the job I should take, the school I should go to, the person I should marry, uh, the church I should belong to, kind of uh, those kinds of things. And oftentimes you'll hear people say, if only I knew what the will of God was for me in this situation, then I could do it. So how do you know what God's will is? Does anyone have the secret uh, information here that we should know about that? The will of God? Tim, do you have the secret knowledge? Well, something when I think about like discernment and things like that, uh, such as when I was taking my job, uh, my first job that moved me to Dallas, uh, first thing I always do is humble myself, open my heart to the Lord, and look at the Ten Commandments and say, okay, if, I, if God's ultimate will is for me to love God and love my neighbor as myself, if I take, let's say, this job, for example, am I honoring him? Or some people may say, maybe they're doing something, but it's out of shame because they want to prove themselves from like someone that, that hurt them. If maybe it's, uh, they do something out of anger. It's, am I walk, is my heart in 
uh, following each of the Ten Commandments. Okay, can I take that one? Let me just take that one. Sure. Okay, so what Tim is saying is that one of the ways that he, um, one of the filters, let's use the word filter. So one of the filters that he runs that decision through is he looks at the commandments, but kind of the scriptures too would be a part of that, I suppose, in terms of checking his own motives through the word of God. So in other words, um, when it would come to the decision about whether I'm going to take a certain job or not, is there anything in that job that would violate the, the word of God, the commandments in particular? I'm not sure which commandment applies to moving to Dallas. That one is, is not, I'm not sure about that one. I'll see if I might add real quick. If my heart's in line with the commandments, then I also pray for wisdom. And kind of like the wisdom I thought is when First Data gave me a list of 30 cities to choose from, I was thinking, oh man, I could go to San Diego, I could live in L.A., but I was like, but would it be wise because of how much, how much money I have and how much it costs out yeah, there? Yeah, so some, some practical aspect to that, right. yeah. But yeah. Like I said, when I read the Proverbs and things like that, sure. it's what would a wise person do? So what's, what's great about what you're saying is that is one of the first places that you go as you think about that is that you go into the Word. Really great. Okay, Carl? All, every one of us has gone, had forks in the road in our lives. Forks in the road, many, yeah. Many, many, many. Yeah, and yeah. And you get to that fork and you say, well, I got three, four, maybe only two decisions to make. Mm -hmm. Jesus said, Jesus went to prayer. He said, Make this obvious to me, Lord. You know, okay. Give me, give me your answer. Yeah. Go pray. And I've, I've had, we've dealt with this many times. In sure. We pray mm -hmm. and shut up and listen. Yeah. Say basically, basically Lord. Which the second part is harder than the first part. Have you? Yeah. Okay. Say, Lord, make these, make the decision feel better than the other ones. Yeah. The right decision, just feel better. Like for example. Moving to another city. Yeah. He had a situation where, the, you know, he loved to live in wherever. Yeah. But the cost of living there was not very good. Sure. And right. The, the environment was a little bit off. And mm -hmm. So those things, the Lord's telling you some things with that. Yeah. So you've got to listen. So pray and listen is another aspect of that, which, of course, if I'm listening, then I'm not talking. So that's really a good, that's, a, that's an, another way of discerning what might be the will of God, or at least what might be blessed by Him in some sense. Yeah, Tom. And I go the easy route. I do the bless it or block it prayer. Bless it or block it? Bless it or block it, God. So you have to say more about that because that doesn't uh, speak to me at all. I've got, I've got two choices to make. Yeah. And I say, okay, I think this is the right choice. Yeah. And I ask God to bless it or block it, and I start down that path. Yeah. If it's blocked, then I know... God, okay, thank you for that answer. And I go with the other. So when the block, does it come up and hit you in the face? Is that what happens? It's, it has. Yes, it has. Yes, yeah. Sometimes sometimes he speaks to me through Vicky. Sure, uh, sure. I, I just have to listen. But it, well, it, yeah. So again, it's, it's opening your mind and your heart to the idea that, that God might have some plans here, right? And that if you're heading down the path and it turns out that that wasn't the path that God wanted because you thought it was, but it turned out that you just wanted it to be God's will, right? Sometimes that happens. Then God would make it clear to you in numerous ways, some of which involve pain. 
suffering, humility, shame, whatever gets you on the right path. Yeah, sure. It seems to go up, you know. It, there is a sort of exponential growth of that, you know, kind of like that. If he can't get your attention with a feather, a two by four works just as fine. Yeah, that's, I think that is in fact biblical. Yeah, Marv. Well, I mean, I'm going to the scripture and prayer, very, very important spiritually, but I mean, as far as practicality, you mentioned before, speaking to someone, a trusted individual, and you mentioned uh, their pastor, pastors who have been mentors to you, someone yeah. like that, yes. is extremely important, especially when it comes to a major decision. Right. Yeah, because yeah, sometimes our emotions get tied up in it, yeah. and then our logic does too, but our logic could be off a little bit, or a lot. So talking to a godly, I would always say godly, but also somebody who will check, at least this is how it works for me, is somebody who will check my thinking. So I'm not as concerned about the doing part because for me the doing follows the thinking. So I want to know, am I thinking straight? You know, am I, am I, is my thinking in a good place and I'm not just going, you know, half-cocked and goofy, doing goofy thinking? So that's what I always look for in, uh, in terms of, that, uh, of those people that can be that for me. And I try to be that for somebody else, too. I, I try not to tell people what to do, um, except in my own family, of course. But um, I know I realize as I say these things, my dearly beloved is right here. And, and then it's like, uh-oh. So anyway, um, yeah, stay in the truth, Jim. So... Uh, so so, but what would happen if, and I'll get Jackie to you in a second, what would happen if you made a certain choice or made a certain decision, and then things got worse before they got better? Have you ever had that happen? You thought, oh, this is God's will. I just know it is. I just know it is. All the green lights are there. All the doors are open. All the whatever that you needed to have as far as the sign from heaven happened. And then you're doing it. And it gets worse before it gets better. What do you do? You keep on going. You keep on going. That's right. Because, she said, keep on going. Partly because God has a way of working things out uh, for your good. Oh, that is in the Bible. Heck of a deal. Romans 8, 28. And to some degree, we can depend on that in even this sense that if the decision that I make, I had the best intent, it was, you know, wasn't trying to have any sort of selfish thing going on here. It really, truly was the best intent, but it's blowing up in my face. You keep going. Because through the resistance to it, are you okay, Jacob? Yes, I'm so sorry. I thought you maybe fell off the chair there for a second. Um, is, uh, oh, and that'll be on the podcast, by the way. Yeah, so, good. <laughs> is that the, the, the process by which you work through the things getting worse before they get better is good for you. It's good for you. And when you look at the scriptures, particularly the book of Acts as an example, where all the time St. Paul and the other saints were following exactly what God's will for them was, it got worse before it got better. It was tough. But what came out of that was spiritual resilience, grit, 
You know, the kind of stuff that you got to have to push through and not just give up because, oh, oh, I just got my toe stubbed and it must not be God's will for me. Like, that is so baloney, right? Yeah, okay, Jackie. With his uh, grit, what were his two words? Uh, the prayer that he does? Pray, who prayer? Who? Blessed or block it. Blessed or block it. Oh, blessed or block it. We have a new quote now. Yes, okay. Well, I had never heard it put that Me way. Me either. You kind of answered, you said it the oh. way I've heard it. Oh, okay. Hear God close some doors and open others. Yeah. That's still the same block it. Or it's, it's kind of, but that's a catchy thing there. Does anybody want to make bumper stickers of that? Or I hope you haven't copyrighted that because now it's going out to millions of Americans, right? Yeah, worldwide. Yeah, Keith. When you're talking about things getting harder, mm -hmm. and a prime example is have you ever prayed for patience? Never. 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 Do not pray for patience. That's right. Because we all know how God gives it. You don't just wake up one morning more patient. Right? No, no. So, we, we know better than that one. Yeah. And besides, that's the fruit of the Spirit. He gives it anyway. Yeah? Okay, good. All right. So, we have lots of people here talking about some pretty neat and uh, spiritual ways to discern God's will in something. Right? And so, the idea is, is that, you know, I, and some people believe this, I think, that there is a a roadmap somewhere in heaven or someplace that says, this is exactly what you're supposed to do. I've never held to that. I kind of take a more general view that says, you know, look at your attitude, look at, you know, talk to godly people, kind of pray over it, contemplate it over it, that sort of thing. And then don't let your own specific expectations about how you think it ought to be once you make the decision, how you think it ought to be, to sort of tie God's hands and then say, well, if I do this and it's your will, then everything has to go perfectly. Okay, it's humanly uh, likely that we would do that, but, but it really is important, I think, not to do that so that you're not always then filled with self-doubt because self-doubt's a killer here, right? I go into it and then things start going crazy and you go, oh no, I must have not done God's will. And the thing is, I, I've known people in my life who were so fixated on making sure that what they were going to do was God's will, they never got around to doing God's will. <laughs> because they were so worried about doing God's will. So I'm going to think it through. I'm going to draw a little roadmap here. I'm going to sp spiritually pray for it. I'm going to do all those things. And then I neglect to do it because it's so exhausting doing all those things that you don't have the energy left over to actually do them, right? And so that, that person kind of lives in the fear, right? The fear of doing the wrong thing or the fear that somehow what I'm about to do will be against God's will. And if that happens, oh my gosh, work, terrible things will happen, Sodom and Gomorrah all over in my life. I mean, it's really like that, right? And that... That's not really a joyful way to live. We call it analysis paralysis. Yes, analysis paralysis, exactly. For a lot of us that are internal thinkers, how many of you are internal processors? Oh my gosh, look how many of them are, uh, how many of us are in here, right? Yeah, we can overanalyze and think something to death and then never get around to doing it, right? Or they blame God too. Or they blame God. How would they blame God? Well, they'll say, that's God's will. I've heard it oh. right here with them. You've heard it here? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I'm looking around wondering who it is. Yes, yes. You got into You got into a discussion. I'm sure that was many years ago. She yeah. Her son had migraines, and she said it was God's will that he had migraines. Okay. And I said, no, it isn't God's will. Oh, and she, she argued with me. I'm trying not to laugh right now. Not at what you're saying, but what the comment over here was in the moment when you said that. Yes, yes. Yeah, so again, see, it... It, it does speak to the idea that I think in, on some level we earnestly want to do God's will. I mean, I, th- I think we want to do that. But sometimes we get our, in our fear, we've, we get real narrow and specific about what God's will is. And we think, oh, it can only be this thing. And I guess where I come at it from, and I think that mo- maybe most of us would, is that it's way more general. And that I can go down that path, and if it turns out that it's not exactly the best thing, guess what? Romans 8.28 kicks in. God works it out for my good, and maybe the good of other people. Now, yeah, maybe the path is a little harder, because maybe it would have been better to go this way than that way. But even if it gets harder, that's not bad. That's good. Yes? You know... I, I have a tendency to think outside, okay, out loud. Oh, really, so John? That's yes. so shocking. Like yes, John, yes. Um, but I think God's will in my life is that I spend eternity with him. And exactly the path I take in getting there yeah. isn't completely determined. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of freedom. In, I mean, he gave us free will. Yes. He wants us to love him. Yeah. And so that's kind of the check. But exactly the path, I think, to me, isn't that Critical. As long as the path still is Jesus. Going in the right direction. Yeah, if it's Jesus. I mean, obviously, that because there's a lot of people today that say, well, you know, any path leads there. And that's, I know you, I know you, and you're not saying that. I know. <laughs> Aren't you? Aren't you? Eventually, yeah. it becomes a very narrow path. Yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? The path sort of narrows. Okay, well, let's keep going here because we're uh, to get back into our lesson for today. All right? which we already are, right? All right, so now we go into verse 31 and following, 31 to uh, 36. So now what's going to happen is Jesus is going to, in some sense, call upon their logic and, in fact, Jewish law to assert the truthfulness of what he's talking about, okay? So he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, talking about John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, the Jewish law held, and I think this is probably even true in our legal system, I guess. How many witnesses does it take to verify the truth of something that a witness is saying? Two, at least two, right? 
because a one-person witness could be off, right? Could be mistaken, could be, oh, I was thinking of something else. But if you have two people that can, can verify something, then that would, would, uh, would give the testimony to be true. So he's calling upon that system, that law, to, to now assert the idea that what he's saying is true, that in fact he and the Father are one, and that in fact he is doing the will of the Father and was sent by the Father. So he says the first witness is John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist say about Jesus when he saw Jesus? He said, behold, the Lamb of God, the Messiah. You know, he in fact baptized, uh, baptized Jesus as well. So that was the first of the testimonies. The second of the testimonies is down there in, at, toward the end of verse 36 where he says, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the things that I'm doing in my ministry, they also bear witness to the fact that the Father has sent me. His point is, I couldn't raise the dead. I couldn't heal the sick. I couldn't uh, uh, have lame people walk as he did in this particular situation unless I had the, the divine power from God himself to do it. So he's saying there in itself are the two witnesses. Now what's interesting about this is that even though John the Baptist baptized Jesus and said at one point in his encounter with Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, referencing the, the fact that Jesus was the Christ and would, would be the Messiah, there was a point in John's life when he doubted that. And the reference to that is in Matthew eleven two 2 to 5, if you'll follow with me. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or what? Should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, what might have led John to maybe start to have some, like, second doubts, some little wondering? You know, what, what would have led John to start to question that? What do you think? Yes? He was sitting in prison. Well, so things weren't turning out so well for John, were they? He was sitting in prison, as you pointed out, Bev, absolutely. And so what do you think it would have been about that fact that might have caused him to start to second guess whether or not Jesus was the one. Jesus didn't get him out of jail. Jesus didn't get him out of jail. Isn't it so human of us to think to ourselves that what faith in Jesus ought to look like? Right? And when it doesn't quite go exactly the way we think it ought to, we start to wonder to ourselves, is he really the one? Should I really trust in him? Should I really have all the eggs in that basket? Or maybe, maybe he's not the one. Maybe it's really somebody else. And maybe, in John's case, as he's in prison and he's looking out the window of the prison seeing kind of what's going on out there. Maybe there's some other people that are saying they are the Messiah, 
And he notices that about those people that are saying they're the Messiah, they're not suffering any grief. In fact, maybe life is going so wonderful for them compared to what it's like for John that he's thinking to himself, maybe I picked the wrong one. Is that possible? Yeah, because that's what happens to us. We get it in our heads that faith in Jesus and a relationship with him ought to fit into whatever the box is that we have created. And it certainly does not include hassle. It certainly does not include persecution. It certainly does not include loss and grief and pain. It doesn't. And yet, it does. And so see, what life with Jesus gives to us is a different perspective when all those crummy things happen. And they're crummy, aren't they? They're not anything that anybody wishes on anybody else. They're crummy. They're part of life. But you see, life with Jesus gave to John perspective, even as he's sitting in prison. So then what happens is Jesus says to John's disciples, here's the answer. He says, go and tell John what you're seeing. And so what is it that Jesus points out as being the evidence or the witness that, uh, that he is in fact the one? Oh, the miracles. Yeah, and look at all the, the quality of those, right? The blind and the lame and the, you know, he's really doing re- wonderful stuff, which was talked about in the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. I didn't reference it here in your lesson or in your outline. But that's exactly what the idea of the Messiah was going to be about, And to some degree, you kind of get the feeling that maybe John had a little bit of a different view of what the Messiah's ministry was going to be like. After all, what was John preaching when he was coming out of the wilderness? What kind of message was he preaching? Repent. Repent. Fire and brimstone. If you don't repent and come back to God, what's going to happen? Fire will rain down on your head, you know? Um, when I was serving one of the churches that I ministered to, I won't name it, but I remember, you know, my style of preaching has not always been the most um, animated. And I remember that this one guy came up to me after church and he wanted to know why I didn't pound the pulpit more. <laughs> well, I kind of have weak hands, that's why, you know, but... But there are some, some people sort of expect that. And you sort of get that sense that with John, he sort of thought that when the Messiah came and the Messiah encountered these people that were just the same as what John encountered, they didn't believe, right? They rejected. John's looking for the fire and the brimstone. John's looking for the, well, when's the earthquake going to come and swallow people up like it did in the Old Testament? When is that going to happen? And when that didn't happen, John started to think, oh, maybe this is not the right guy. So you can see where sometimes our own expectations of what we think Jesus ought to be and what we think faith with him ought to be can get in the way of how he is. And so Jesus does a little course direction with John. It says, no, I'm the right one. But you got to change your expectations of what you think life with me is about and what you think I myself am about. Okay. So let's go to the next one, page, uh, verse 37. 
And the Father who sent me himself has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So we talked about witnesses. There's two witnesses so far that he's mentioning. The witness of John and the witness of the works that Jesus had been doing. That was the two witnesses. But now he also says, the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. But now he requires a little faith on their part. He says, the Father that you've never heard or seen, right? So he's appealing beyond their logic, beyond their intellect, to realize that God himself has, in fact born witness, but the witnessing that the Father has borne witness to is in the Word. So what do you make of this puzzling verse in verse 39? You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Well, I thought that it was in the Scriptures that we had eternal life. And yet it kind of sounds like Jesus is saying... Well, they're searching the Scriptures, and they think that eternal life is in the Scriptures. And yet, he's saying, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What do you make of that? Why don't you mull that over while I sip my coffee? Our eternal life is not in the Scriptures, it's through Jesus. Ooh, that's very radical what you just said. Did you hear, did you hear what he said? Did you hear the heresy that he just said? <laughs> as long as, well, I mean, it is and it isn't. I mean, it is and it isn't. Oh, that's, that is my answer. It is and it isn't. Yeah, let, let's, let's play with this, Marv. Okay, let's go, let's go with this. I mean, you can find your, your salvation through the Scripture, but ultimately it needs to be through your love of Jesus and your belief. Did you not agree? <laughs> <laughs> Help me here. <laughs> Yes, you're drowning, and I'm holding this life preserver, and I'm not ready to throw it to you just yet. So just drowned a little bit longer. Okay, yeah. I know. It's, it's torture. It's torture. Yeah, but you're on the right track. Okay. Is it possible to be so enamored with the Scriptures that you miss the point of the Scriptures? Yeah. And I think that's what he's talking about here. They had the scriptures. Now, granted, the scriptures that they had were the first five books of Moses. That's what they believed were the, was the Bible. I mean, that was what they had. They, the New Testament hadn't been, like, put in a book yet, right? Uh, so that's what they had. And then they had the prophets, okay? They had Isaiah. They had all those guys. But they were so focused on what they were looking for in the Bible that they missed the whole point of the Bible. And the point of the Bible, particularly in, in terms of the uh, Old Testament, was that it was pointing to the Messiah. And, but what they did was they took the verses that they wanted to have point to the Messiah, and they said, well, those are the verses that are the Messiah, and that's the only Messiah we'll accept. That when the Messiah came, for example, it would be because the people of God were following God's law perfectly. See, that was part of the reason why they went around as the sort of uh, p police, the, the morality police, the PC police, that sort of thing, 
uh, maybe not politically correct, it was probably religiously correct, the RC people, okay, is <laughs> probably what they were. And so they wanted to make sure that everybody's doing everything exactly the way they're supposed to do it, because if you do it the way you're supposed to do it, then Jesus will come, the Messiah will come. Well, then the Messiah comes, and he's breaking all the laws that they said everybody needs to follow, and you can see where that would create a problem for them. And it would have caused them to say, he's not the Messiah, because their preconceived idea of what the Messiah was was getting in their way, only they didn't know it. It is possible to have a Bible in your house and not know Jesus. Is that surprising? Yeah, I know. Shocking. I know I told you this story that when I was serving in smaller churches, I did a lot of home visits. And when I would... Uh, go to somebody's house for the first time. They're meeting me, I'm meeting them. And they obviously wanted to make a good impression. <laughs> so they would pull the Bible off the shelf. Some bothered to dust it off, some didn't. And they would put it out on the little table there, like in front of the thing. And, you know, I was tempted to be snarky, but I wasn't. <laughs> but it was a little bit of this sense of, Pastor, you can be reassured because we do have a Bible in the house. And isn't that a little bit of human nature? I mean, again, we kind of, yeah, we want to make a good impression, so we do it for that reason. But it's also that you can take comfort in the fact that you have something. But if you never crack it open, and it's not a part of you, and we're going to see Jesus talking about this idea that it's a part of you. It's, it, it's like it's integrated into you then it's very likely that you'll fall in love with having it and never get around to be believing what it is that it says. And to some degree, we see that today, or I do, among people that devote their lives to studying the Bible intellectually, but don't ever get their heart wrapped around or get their heart involved uh, spiritually with faith. So it's a little bit like, Yes, I know the Bible. I can quote scripture. I can quote verse and passage and where it is, and we can intellectually uh, talk about it and have wonderful theological conversation. When you read or hear in the news something quoting Bible scholars, you have to check that out to see if the Bible scholar actually believes the Bible or is he just looking at it like a piece of literature or something that you can then say, well, we're going to examine it in the same way that we'll look at Shakespeare. Okay? From a literary perspective, or from a poetry perspective, or from what's called a form-critical perspective. Form criticism is, is a term that was used back in the 70s when I was in the seminary, and it was a big part of why the Missouri Synod split, and the Bible was the main thing of that, form criticism. So it's just... If you examine the Bible from that critical point of view, and I'm not, I'm not against critical thinking because I think there's a lack of that today in a lot of people. They're not thinking critically. They're just kind of going off on tangents like we do in here, right? <laughs> but you can go off on tangents, by the way, if you're grounded. But what if you're not grounded? Then you're lost in space. Like that TV show, Lost in Space, remember that? Yeah. I'm hearing the music in my head. Even something, you'll fall for anything. Oh, say that again. I want that on tape. Yeah, say that again. If you don't believe in something, you will fall for anything. And that's a, a lot of what society is today, or anybody for that matter, 
who has said, I reject truth. If I reject truth, if I, even, if I, reju- if I reject the existence of truth, then everything becomes my truth. The problem is when we disagree, I don't know which truth is truth. So what, what Jesus is saying here is he's cautioning them and us to not become so enamored with the scripture as a signpost to heaven that we miss heaven altogether. So you notice up on the board, I put a sign here. And what does the sign say? Salvation. So where does it say salvation is? Over there. Over there. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's over there. So it's off the, off the board. It's over there somewhere. Okay? All right. Could I become so particular about the sign that I miss what the sign is saying? Yeah, so like if I was to say, like one of you that's very artistic, if you would be interested in coming up here and decorating the sign and making the sign way better than I made it, real prettier and, you know, that sort of thing, we could get excited about the sign. And we could spend so much time and energy uh, thinking about the sign and critiquing the sign and thinking, oh, you know, you shouldn't have made that red, but you should make that green. We could do that. And totally miss what? The message in the sign. The message in the sign. Yeah. Luther, he referred to the scriptures as the cradle in which the Christ child lay. And some of us can get so fixated on the condition of the cradle that we completely toss the Christ child. You're in the way of the cradle. I need to fix the cradle. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. That seems like the way in time churches are they're so concerned i mean the verse says no one knows the time or the date that he'll return but their whole thing is about reading the scripture and this is the end time mm-hmm. that's right here that's but right i know and some have drawn big maps of it and and like you can sort of plot it okay and again some of that is they believe in jesus but there's such angst about the end of the world that you think you could lose the comfort of Jesus in your angst about, oh, is the latest thing that's happening in Iran or Iraq a fulfillment of that particular scripture, right? When, see, kind of from Lutheran perspective, or at least conservative Lutheran perspective, we, it's not that we would dismiss it, we just don't know because there have been those claims been made for centuries, so where are you going to put your faith? You know, where are you going to put your trust? So what Jesus then moves into is he says, the problem here is that you have the word, but you're not abiding in the word. And so now we're going to see the use of this word abide, which is a very strong theme in the gospel of John. We're going to see it from this point on, lots and lots of examples. And the one example that comes to mind is in John 15, which we will eventually get to probably two or three years from now. Okay. (laughs) So in John 15, four to seven, he says, what? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. So he's referencing the vineyard here. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone abide, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. See, it's that, it's, it, the word is important here. It's not just, oh, faith in Jesus. It's also the word, right? But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Okay, so I think, Hal, didn't you say one time like 50 years ago that you knew something about grafting? My father. Your father was... He was a grafter. So when somebody wants to graft something, how do you graft something? Do you like get um, like Gorilla Tape and you just sort of tape it and that? You do an incision and then you apply the new uh, graft that you're going in there and you bind that and my father used beeswax. Beeswax is, that's right. I remember you told this story. That, yeah. yeah. And you pray. Oh, and you pray. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> So the idea of the grafting is that, and they would often do this, I think, when, it, with grapes to come out with different varieties of wines and grapes and things, is that you make a cut into the vine, not the branch, but the vine. You might have to carve it up a little bit, stick it in there, and then you're binding it or gluing it or something. Yeah. I think today, do they use super glue or do they still use, uh, you know, well, when you go get stitches anymore, you get super glued together. I know. Yeah. So, and so then that would form a scar, would it not? And the scar then is the place where the wounding has occurred in order for the graft to be identified and then be, be, be accepted. And then you pray and hope that you've done a good job and God will do his job. When the graft has taken hold there is a seamless connection between the vine and the branch. Looking at it, you can say, oh, I know what is the vine and I know what is the branch. But in terms of what's going on internally, it's seamless. That's what he means when he says abide. It's not like the word is just gorilla glued to your life. It's that there is a seamless connection between what the Word is talking about and the impact the Word has on your life and the way you think. Your thinking becomes seamless with God's thinking. Wow. And that's what he's talking about. See, and that's what was missing with the people that Jesus is talking to. That they weren't ready or to some degree their own thinking got in the way of that thinking. Now, there were a few that got it. We already saw the example of one of those guys in, uh, in John 3. Remember who that was? Nicodemus, yeah. Yeah, Nicodemus already was thinking beyond the thinking of the day and beyond the thinking of his group. And he allowed himself to go there. And Jesus said, huh, let's do it, right? And so that's what we do here. We're trying to get our, our thinking aligned with Jesus' thinking. It's not that you lose, and you, have you noticed this, that when, you, when your thinking is seamless with God's thinking, you do not lose your individuality. Have you noticed that? Like, when you became a Christian, did your personality change? Oh, we should ask your mother. <laughs> I mean, does it? 
Do you become like this angelic person that, oh, can never do wrong, and people say, oh, I don't know what came over that person. Is that, does that happen? No. And yet, you are filled with something that the Word gives you and that faith gives you that you didn't have before. Right? It's seamless. It's seamless. And it's not perfect. It's just seamless. Yeah. Your heart changes. Your heart does change a little bit at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Intellectually, you see it. But your heart changes as you go along. There is something different about you. And nobody quite knows what that is. Yes. I want to throw some way in right field. Are you going to come out of right field on this, Brian? Okay, thank you. And I'm, I could have the wrong name because I don't work in that generation. Is it Kanye West? Kanye West? Yeah, okay. He's put out a Christian. He's putting out a Christian album. Yeah, he's still going Christian. The Wall yeah. Street Journal is all over because I think he's faking this. They think he's faking it, right? You're just doing this because it's a good market, right? Good market. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. I'll tell the attack him. I mean, it's not like yeah. you could change. But yeah, it's all money. It's all for mm-hmm. show. So could the Wall Street be, uh, Journal be correct? Could be. Have people been known ever to sort of make a sort of public thing about, oh, I now believe in Jesus and, and my life is different and they're just doing it for the money? Sure, of course. So what are we to do with that, with what uh, his public thing is? Now, what are we to do with that? I don't know, because everybody piles on and says, hey, you guys are just... Okay, what are you doing with it? <laughs> oh, we got personal on that one, didn't we? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's, it's a little bit of like... That, I think that is the question, though. What am I going to do with that? Am I going to look at that Maybe rightfully skeptical, right? Maybe looking at it thinking, okay, let's look at this a year from now and see if he's still operating the same way. I mean, maybe. There's a little bit of wondering about, is he like Zacchaeus? You know, in the story this morning, Zacchaeus? Like he had like this instant change and and it was quite a, a marked change, was it not? You know, yeah, I've been ripping people off all this time and I'm giving it all back fourfold. So maybe Kanye will go that direction. I don't know. Okay? Sometimes we just have to wait and see. Yes? Well, maybe some people are on the fence. Yes, some people. kind of are following him. Yes. And seeing that his life is changing, whether it truly is or not, Mm -hmm. and then become a Christian because of that. It's very possible. It's very possible. It's tempting, is it not? to look at public figures and get a little skeptical and a little judgmental and all that kind of stuff. Isn't it, Brian? Isn't it? Yeah. It is. So I need to, first of all, kind of watch my own. Um, it's, I think it's okay to be skeptical. But I don't want my skepticism to turn into being judgmental. Okay? So I kind of say, wait and see. Yeah, Dan. What do you do when, if anybody tells you they're a Christian? If anybody. You give them the benefit of the doubt. You believe That's right. I know. That's what we do. Because I can't look in somebody's heart and say, oh, that person's a Christian any more than I can look in somebody's heart and say that someone isn't. If they say they are, okay. I'm going to take it at face value. But I, am I going to kind of wait? You know, I think in Zacchaeus' case, 
People were waiting for the money to hit their bank account before they were willing to say, okay, the change has happened. And will that affect how my next year's taxes? See? See, I always want to know, what was the next day like? That's what I want to know. When these miraculous things happen, you know, or something like that. What was the next day like? And did the change carry over for more than 24 hours? Yeah. Keep that question. I tend to look for evidence of a changed life. You look for changed life? Yeah. We should see that. Yes. And with these unique people have politicized this discussion, which really upsets me. So when I hear this, I just say, okay, what's the evidence of a changed life? You should see that. If you don't, then... It, I wouldn't say it's not there, but I would say that I need to look at it more closely, okay? Because part of it is, is that it's an issue of trust, and in terms of trust, there has to be some public trustworthiness, especially if I'm a public figure. So it's one thing to say that I am what I am, but it's another thing to, to walk the walk, not just talk the talk, Okay? So I, I do think that there is a, um, maybe a verification, some sense of that, and time kind of bears that out, right? But the difficulty of it is, as Dan's pointing out, you have to be careful that you don't judge. And kind of where that line is, Dan, is a tough one. Hey, you're not with that person 24 hours. You don't know what they're doing. That's right. You don't know what they're doing. They could be doing things that you don't see. Oh, God forbid. God forbid that their, their sinfulness would show up. Yeah, well, it's like any, like, how do you know I'm a Christian? Because you're a pastor. <laughs> how do you know a pastor's a Christian? Oh, because I look like it. Yeah, that's right. We see the fruits of what you do and who you are. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you're a pastor, that's neither here nor there. Wait a minute, that's not just here or there. No, I know, because there's a lot of Christian, a lot of pastors or people that got ordained somehow, and they're not. No, I mean, look at the prosperity gospel. That's sure. Because I'm, like, okay, yeah. I'm not rich and famous, I'm not a Christian. People preach that. Yeah. I have a problem with that. I do, too, because it's not biblical. It's not. Okay, it's not. It, and that's a good example of somebody who could take the Bible and use it for something other than what it was intended for. It's my blueprint for success or how to have a good business, or all those things, okay? Yeah. So see, again, we, you, we look at a per, the outside of a person, we do, but sometimes we confuse the outside of a person with the inside of the person. And we assume that, oh, that person sinned, so we know about them, right? Oh, gosh, that person did so much good. Oh, we know about them. Well, guess what? You not, we will not know till uh, the sheep are over there and the goats are over there. That's when we'll truly know. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Right? Okay. One more comment, Philip. You, and then we have to close because I have to work, uh, go to back to work. Okay? Well, I, I just had a question. Then what, what about um, the, the scripture of identifying them by their fruits? Like, what about that? You say, you say, like, we can't see on the outside, but on the inside, you know, if, if uh, uh, what is it, the fig tree that Jesus cursed because it didn't produce fruit, you know, yeah, what about that? That's right, Philip. That's an excellent question, and we will get to that next week as we... 
Philip gets to end with the last question. All right, so this is good stuff. We're going we're gonna to pick it up because, again, Jesus ties together the idea of motive. Okay, motive. So very good question. Excellent question, Brian. Thank you for getting us down that path. That was excellent. All right, let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word, sometimes your word tickles us and we love it. And then there's other times when your word like just nails us and we go, oh, rats. And this maybe is one of those times, Lord, where we, we kind of struggle with what your word is saying to us, partly because it hits us right between the eyes of our spiritual heart. That's good. Your spirit's working on us, Lord. And as it does, I would pray this coming week that we have opportunity to put that to the test to encounter people that maybe we think to ourselves, hmm, I wonder if that guy's a Christian. And then we look at our own lives and we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, ooh, I wonder if that guy's a Christian. Well, it's not what's on the outside, is it, Lord? It's what's on the inside. And the good news is you are on the inside, working on us, shaping us, forming us to love you and for that love to show up with other people. So stay after us this week, Lord, until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, Please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone, or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.